Shalom, there's Abigail Rock. Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. We have four brachot left for today. The brachot of Asher, Naftali, Yosef, Binyamin. We will begin today from chapter 49, verse 20. Asher's bread shall be rich, and he shall bring forth kingly dishes. This bracha is talking about the fertile land of the tribe of Asher. His produce will be saturated in the territory of Asher. It was very fine land for the growth of olives. And that's why Shemena, the word Shemen, and his produce will be so fine that it will be used on king's tables. Verse 22, the Brachav, This is generally translated by most translations, Naftali, a hind let loose, who brings forth lovely fawns or who brings forth beautiful fruit. Several of the classic commentators describe the Ayala as a, an attribute of the Naphtalites, who were sprinters. And in the battlefield, this was very helpful. So they, would, they were the sprinters either during the, the battlefield or post-battlefield, they were the sprinters who would come to announce the victory like an Ayala Shlucha, as a deer who is sent out to fulfill an assignment. The emblem of the Israeli Postal Service is an Ayala Shlucha, a deer running to deliver the mail, which was designed in 1949 by the Shamir brothers, the same brothers who had designed the symbol of the state of Israel, the menorah, with the two olive branches on either side. However, the, I think the best perush is actually in the Targum Shiv'im, in the Septuagint. The Targum Shivim, which is the earliest translation of the Torah to another language, was translated into Greek. And it is relevant for this week, the week that you're going to be listening to the Shi'ur, because on the 8th of Tevet, according to Seder Olam Rabbah, and, according, and also expressed in the Kinot of Asarab Tevet, a Kinah written by Rabbi Yosef Tov Elim, laments the translation of the Torah. I think it's an important discussion in the context of these shirim, to understand that as much as we try to translate the psukim, we are not, it's a translation. And a translation is not identical to the words. It is impossible to offer an exact translation. Any translation by nature is going to be an interpretation. The translation, we also, in translation, we also lose the depth of a word. We lose the play of words. We lose the, we lose the deeper understanding. We lose Dvar Hashem. And Chazal say that, and the Gemara says that on the day that the Torah was translated, darkness came to the world for three days. This is almost an inverse Matan Torah as opposed to the light of Matan Torah and the fire that comes with Matan Torah and the three days of preparation. This is the, uh, and the three days of preparation towards Matan Torah. This is an inverse Matan Torah. Darkness comes to the world for three days because we are almost destroying Oh, and it goes on to say, and that the day that the Masechet Sofrim describes the day of, the tr of translating the Torah as a day that was as difficult as the day that the golden calf was made, because it is not the word of God. You are taking the word of God and you're distorting it. We cannot limit the Hebrew language and the word of God into any other language. However, though perhaps tragic, the fact that the Torah was translated... Nonetheless, we, the Targum Shiv'im, being the earliest 
translation is also the earliest form of interpretation. It is the earliest parshanut. It is the earliest commentary that we have on the Chumash. And on this pasuk, the way it's translated into Greek is naftali. The word ayala is not an animal, is not a deer. In Hebrew, we have an ayal, and the female of the ayal is an ayelet. We do not have an animal by the name ayala. Targum translates the word ayala as a tree, maybe from, maybe from the word elah. So naftali is, an el, is a tree with branches, shluchot, a shlucha are branches, and we know this from Sefer Yishayahu, shluchoteha nitshu avru yam, its branches have been abandoned, had gone to sea, and there's a kibbutz in Har Gilboa, kibbutz shluchot, a kibbutz that was established by Holocaust survivors in mem memory of their friends would ha which had been killed in the Holocaust, and they named themselves Shluchot, we are the branches, we are the continuation of those who perished during the Holocaust. So Naftali Ayala Shlucha, Naftali is a tree with branches. Hanoten Imrei Shafer, Amir is the top of the tree, and the top of the tree gives Shafer beautiful fruit. And if this is the interpretation, it fits in very nicely with several of the other brachot that we have seen up until now, which are describing the nature of the land. So we described Asher, Shamna Lachmo, he has fertile land, and here too we're also describing the land that Naftali receives, which is fertile land, land that the trees will give off beautiful fruits. So Naftali Ayala a tree with branches, and the top of the branches give off beautiful fruit. From Naftali we move on to Yosef, verse 22. Ben Porat Yosef, Ben Porat Alei Ein, Benot Ada Alei Shur, Vayemareruhu, Varobu, Vayistemuhu, Baalei Chitzim. A fruitful son is Yosef, a fruitful son by a spring, daughters strode by a rampart. They savaged him, shot arrows, and harassed him. The archers did. But taut was his bow, his arms ever moving. Through the hands of the champion of Yaakov, through the name of the shepherd and, Israel, and Israel's rock, from the God of your fathers, may he, may he aid you. Shakai, may he bless you. Blessings of the heavens above, blessing of deep that lies below, blessing of breast and womb. Your father's blessings surpass the blessings of timeless heights, the bounty of hills everlasting. May they rest on the head of Yosef, on the brow of the one set apart from his brothers. So it is no doubt that the two longest brachot among the twelve brachot that Yosef gives his sons goes to Yehuda and to Yosef. Yehuda receives the leadership position in the family, and Yosef receives the Bechorah, the firstborn rights in the family. Ben Porat Yosef, though most translations to this pasuk, including the translation that I had read out by Robert Alter, translated the word Ben as a son, I would like to adopt the understanding of Radak and Ibn Ezra, both who are outstanding linguists, and they explain the word Ben here, not as a son, but rather as a branch. And in Sefer Tehilim, Vechana sher nat'ayim inecha, ve'al ben imatz talach, 
It is talking about a, a vine with branches which God had strengthened. So ben, ben imatzdalach, there means a, a, a branch. So Yosef is a fruitful branch. Alei ayin. Ayin is a ma'ayan, a spring. The Eved of Avraham uses this word. Va'avo hayom el ha'ayin. I've arrived today to the spring. So Yosef is a fruitful tree, a fruitful branch, planted by a spring. Benot sa'ada alei shur. Both Radak and Ibn Ezra explain that benot is parallel to ben. The, if the ben is the branch and Ibn Ezra brings the etymology, why is ben considered a branch? Because the father is the ilan, is the tree, and the offshoots, the branches, are the descendants of the tree, and therefore they are called banim. So the ben is the, is the branches, and it could be also be used as banot. So it is banot sa'adale, sure, that the branches of the tree spread out, so'ed, spray out, upon the shore. Now shore is a wall, so the branches spread out and climb up the wall. So the brachav Yosef is a tree who's going to be fruitful, and it's a nice play of words to call him ben parat, to the father of Ephraim. The tree Yosef will be a fruitful tree by a water, which reminds us, echoes to us, the perek aleph of Tehillim, the ke'et shatul al palgei mayim, the tree which is planted by a water source. So this is ben parat Yosef, ben parat alei ayin. And its branches will go far out, reach high, b'not sa'ada alei shur, the branches will climb up the wall. Yaakov continues, verse 22, His life was made miserable, he, arrows were shot at him, and he was despised by archmen. And the commentators try to figure out what event is this talking about. There are those that say this is the story of the wife of Potiphar, who makes his life miserable and despises him, the imagery of Baalei Chitzim, archmen, the use, the use of words in a negative way, trying to frame someone through words, the metaphor that's used for that in Tanakh is often Baalei Chitzim, one who attacks his fellow man using his mouth is considered an archman. The other interpretation and is that this is not talking about the wife of Potiphar, it is talking about Yosef's brothers. To the question we addressed several times, is Yaakov aware of what happened to Yosef? So there are those that will bring this pasuk as proof that yes, and this is talking about the brothers had made his life miserable, and the brothers had tried to attack him and hated him. And Shalal points out, that it's unlikely that Yaakov would refer to his own sons in the derogatory term Ba'alei Chitzim. Shadal, however, does agree that it is talking about the story of Yosef being sold, but, but it is not describing the hatred of the brothers and the cruelty of the brothers. This is reflecting, the story that we have here in Yaakov's bracha is reflecting the scenario that Yaakov believes. Maybe it is a scenario that the brothers had told Yaakov when they came back from Shechem. Maybe this is the scenario that Yaakov builds up in his own mind over the years when trying to figure out what had happened to Yosef. And no one ever corrected him because no one really wants to tell Yaakov what had happened. The scenario according to this is that Yosef was out and he was trapped. He was kidnapped. His life was made miserable. They and his kidnappers sold him as a slave. So this bitterness and these attackers, these archmen, 
are those the Akov things had stolen Yosef, kidnapped Yosef, and tortured him and sold him to Egypt. Yaakov goes on to describe the success of Yosef, even though he was put in this very difficult situation. Against the archman, he is holding his bow sturdy. His hands are fast, his hands are quick with the bow and arrow. And who gave him this success? Miedei Avir Yaakov. Shadask just that the word Avir comes from the word Ever, Ever Kayona, which is a, a wing. So it is the wings who had protected Yaakov. He who protects Yaakov is the one who had protected Yosef, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of course. Misham Ro'e Eben Yisrael. So it, this can be interpreted, as, and from there he became, Yosef had become, Ro'eh, the shepherd, the family of, of Yaakov, or the protector of Yaakov, who now became the protector of Ibn Yisrael. Ibn Yisrael, suggested by Dat Mikra, is the son. Ibn in Arabic is the son of the God who had protected Yaakov, is now protecting the son of Yaakov. Up until now was the description of what had happened to Yosef in the past, and now is a blessing for the future. Me'el avicha v'yezreka ve'et shakai v'yivarchecha b'yuchot shamayim me'al b'yuchot zehom rovetze tachat b'yuchot shadayim v'rachem So he's blessed with great uh, uh, plenty and bounty. B'yuchot, the bracha of God, should help him, and he blesses him with the plant, with the b'yuchot shamayim, the, the gifts of the heaven and the gifts of the earth below, and he blesses him with a bracha of being fruitful and bracha of the breast and of the womb. May the blessing of your father be even more than the blessing of Horai. Horai can be of my parents. May you get even more than I have received. May they be greater. May your father's blessing be a greater blessing than the blessing that my parents, Yaakov's parents, had given Yaakov. That's one way of interpreting it. Another possibility is Horai is not uh, parents, but rather mountains. Harim. May the blessings of your father be as great as greater than mountains, up until the the highest of the uh, of the hilltops. May these blessings set upon the head of ya- of Yosef. Tihiena lerosh Yosef. May they rest upon the kodkod, the head, of he who is Nazir Echav, he who is separated of his, from his brothers, referring to Yosef, whom has been separated from the rest of his brothers. Our last bracha is the bracha Binyamin. Binyamin Zev Yitrof, Baboko Yuchal Ad, Vilaerev Yechalek Shalal. Binyamin, ravening wolf, in the morn he consumes the spoils, at evening shares out plunder. This describes the fiercefulness of the tribe of Binyamin, who will be very courageous warriors. The imagery that is used by Yaakov to describe Binyamin, Binyamin is a wolf, but Binyamin, unlike the wolf, who goes out to attack its prey at night, Binyamin is fearless and he goes out during the day. Baboker yochal ad, ad is spoils, and during the day, in daylight, he goes out to attack, and in the evening, he gives out the spoils. He looks out for his tribe, and he gives out the spoils. So the Brachav Binyamin is a fearless, courageous tribe who do not fear to go out and fight, even in the most threatening of circumstances.
We have now completed all 12 brachot of Yaakov to his sons. Pasuf Kafchet concludes, Kol ele shivtei Yisrael shnei masar, vezot asher diber lahem avihem, veyevarech otam, ish asher kevirchato berach otam. All of these are the Shvatim, 12 Shvatim. And this is what Yaakov had said to them, and he had blessed them. Each one, according to his bracha, was blessed. Now in our class yesterday, when we had discussed the brachot, and we mentioned that some of these brachot do not sound like brachot, they sound more like curses, I said I would give another answer at the end of the class as to how to understand these brachot. According to Ibn Ezra, and his interpretation of this concluding pasuk, is that what we read up until now was Yaakov's goodbye messages to each and every one of the Shvatim. This is what Yaakov had spoken to them before his death. After he gave a goodbye speech to each of and every one of his sons, then he blesses them. What is this blessing? We don't know. It's not written. So there's two parts that takes place in this chapter, in this unit. Part number one is it is Yaakov speaking goodbye, words of goodbye to each of his sons. Then we have we have the blessing that he gives his son. That blessing is not written down. And indeed at the introduction to this unit where we begin these goodbye words, what we call brachot of Yaakov to his sons, it never says that these are brachot. It says Yaakov summoned his sons and said, Gather here, and I will tell you that which will happen in times to come. It never says that this was a bracha. And I want to just read out from Ibn Ezra on chapter 49, verse 1. People were mistaking in understanding this unit, and they call them brachot because of the last pasuk when it says, Not a bracha. And later on, after he spoke to them, and that's how Ben Ezra deals with the problem that we had raised. What kind of bracha is it to say to Reuven, you're losing your firstborn right? Or to tell Shimon and Levi that your wrath is cursed? So Ben Ezra says, no, this is not a bracha. The brachot came later. We don't have those brachot. All we have here is Yaakov summoning his sons to speak to them about the future. So we've ended now the brachot. And from here we move on to... The will of Yaakov. We had already spoken a bit about the will of Yaakov when Yaakov had spoken to Yosef. But now Yaakov is delivering a will to all of his sons in chapter 49, verse 29. <laughs> אשר קנה אברהם את השדה מת אפרון החיתי לאחוזת קבר, שם קברו את אברהם ואת שרה אשתו, שם קברו את יצחק ואת רבקה אשתו, ושם קברתי את לאה. Yaakov quest of his sons before his death as his will. He said to them, I will be gathered to my people, which is the terminology that's used in death, Ne'esaf el Amo. Generally a family had the family burial cave. So when a person was buried, he joined his family. So I'm going to be joining my my people, that's my family, bury me with my fathers in the cave, which is in the field of Ephron Achiti, in the cave, in this field of the Machpelah, in the land of Mamre, 
that which Avraham had purchased from Hebron. There Avraham and Sarah, his wife, were buried. There Yitzchak and his wife Rivka were buried. And there I had buried Leah. Yaakov is making here two points. Point number one, the Me'ara in Machpelah is legally owned by the family. It was purchased legally by Avraham from Ephron Achiti. That's number one. Point number two, Yaakov, ha it is very important for Yaakov to be buried in Ma'arat HaMachpelah. This might not be a simple request and will require a great deal of logistics to take care of. It is important to him because he is connected to that place. That is where his grandparents are buried, that is where his parents are buried, and that is where, where Le'ah is buried. Notice, when he says Sarah, he refers to Sarah as the wife of Avraham. When he says Rivka, he refers to Rivka as the, the wife of Yitzchak. But when he says Le'ah, he does not refer to her as Le'ah, my wife. It is just Le'ah. Yaakov always views his wife as Rachel. Nonetheless, this is the family's inheritance. This is where his family is buried. And this is where he would like to, after his last request of his sons, verse 33, Yaakov had completed commanding his sons, giving him the will regarding his burial instructions. He gathered his feet to the bed, and he died. These words, he collected his, his legs. He lifted his legs up to the bed, and he died. Literally what it means is he lifted up his legs, went into bed, and he died afterwards. I think there's more to be read into these legs. Yaakov's legs were mentioned once before, and that's when Yaakov had run away from Esav. In chapter 29, verse 1, Yaakov had taken his legs and had gone eastwards. That's when he's running away from Esav. Yaakov now is completing a very long journey, leaving his home, escaping from his brother, arriving at the household of Laban, and a great deal of aggravation he had there. And now it's really over. The journey that had begun with Vaisavaglav is now over. So those legs that had run away are finally at peace. Vayesofraglav el Hamita. Chapter 50, verse 1. Vayipol Yosef al Pneaviv, Vayefk alav, Vayishaklo. Yosef falls upon his father. He cries and he kisses his father. Rabbi Yosef Ibn Kaspi points out that this is a fulfillment of the Nevu'ah Yaakov had received when he was in Be'er Shava. When Yaakov is worried and concerned about going to Egypt and God tells him to go and not to worry, that God is going to be with him. And then God adds that Yosef yashit yadol enecha, that Yosef, you will see Yosef and Yosef will be with you when you die and he will shut your eyes. This is Vayipol Yosef al Pnei Aviv. This is the point where Yosef is shutting Yaakov's eyes right after his death. Verse 2, Vayetzav Yosef et avadav et harufim lachanot et aviv, vayachantu harufim et Yisrael. Yosef had commanded his servants, the doctors, to embalm his father, and the doctors have embalmed the body of Yaakov. And this is somewhat ironic that they are called rufim, the doctors. Because one would expect the doctors to help the living, to help extend life, and here it is the Rofim who are in charge of the embalming. It is as though the text is telling us that in Egypt, the care for the dead is as valuable, if not more than valuable, the care for the living. 
the Egyptians believed in preserving the body. The way they preserved it is by mummifying and bombing the body. It also represented not only the idea of preserving the body, but it was also a form of respect towards the deceased. So the more respected the person was, the more likely he was to have his body embalmed. Now, we don't know why Yosef asks the doctors to embalm his father. It doesn't, we're not told. It's possible that that's the form of respect that Yosef is familiar with and that he wants that respect for his father. But another possibility is that this body is going to have to wait 70 days until they travel with it back to Canaan because there's a very long ceremony of mourning and his father is considered a, a national persona. So the nation is going to need the he's going to be in Egypt for 70 days while the nation mourns, mourns him. And after that, they need to travel through the hot desert till they arrive in Canaan, and the body will will smell bad. So, in order to so Yosef, knowing that it's going to take a very long time till it reaches till Yaakov's body reaches the final destination in Hebron, he commands his doctors to mummify the body. Verse There were forty days that of mummification. And Mitzrayim had mourned Yaakov for 70 days, so that would probably be 40 days of mummification, plus an additional 30 days. <laughs> So the days of mourning had passed, and Yosef had spoken to Paro's household, and he said, If I so find favor in your eyes, speak please in the ears of Paro, and say, My father had sworn me to say, I am dying. Bury me in my burial place, which I had dug out in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. And now allow me to go and bury my father, and I shall return. Yosef is not speaking here directly to Paro. Yosef is speaking through Paro's servants, through Paro's household, through mediators. The Parshanim bring different possibilities as to why Yosef is not speaking directly to Paro. One suggestion is that he's still in a state of mourning, so he's wearing sackcloth. And we know from Megillat Esther that you cannot approach the king wearing sackcloth. The other possibility is that it is a very sensitive matter that he's about to request. The dead people were considered assets of Egypt. They worshiped the dead people and removing Yaakov from the land of Egypt is removing an important asset. So we need permission. And no less sensitive is the fact that Yosef wants to leave Egypt. And Yosef is a very important asset in Egypt. And who knows if he leaves, he may not come back. So because of the sensitivity of the matter, Yosef needs people to speak on his behalf. He does, he he doesn't think that he alone will manage to convince Paro, so he asks the household of Paro to speak on his behalf. I'd like to add that our story is taking place 15 years since the famine is over. So perhaps Yosef's status in the household of Paro is not what it used to be. He's not as close to Paro as he used to be. Maybe he's not anymore that same Mishnella Melech. He's important, and we see, well, even the story is important, but he might not have that same status that he used to have when he was very much needed in Mitzrayim as during the years of the famine. 
So since the issue is a very sensitive issue, Yosef chooses his words very carefully. And Yosef says, Avihi Shbi'ani, my father had sworn me. Now the truth is, that's not exactly what happened. Yaakov had told Yosef Hishav'ali. It is Yosef who had sworn. It is not Yaakov who had sworn Yosef. It is Yosef who had was actually taken an oath. But Yosef doesn't want to make it seem to Paro. He, Yosef, is responsible for putting himself himself in such a situation that he's going to have to fulfill his promise. Yosef makes himself seem passive here as the father that had sworn me to do this. Another thing that Yosef does, he changes a little bit the commandment of Yaakov. Yaakov tells Yosef, Al natik Yaakov's emphasis is, I do not want to be buried here in Egypt. Clearly, Yosef cannot tell, that would be very insulting to Paro. Yosef can't tell him that my father does not want to be buried here. Yosef focuses on Canaan and that he already, that our father had prepared himself a burial place in Canaan. And he, Yosef makes sure to add that I will bury him and I will return because that is a concern of Paro that he may not return. Pasuk. Paro tells Yosef, go and bury your father as he had sworn you to do. Paro respects the an oath, especially an oath to a father. We mentioned this a couple classes ago when we had said after Yosef had given his word to his father that he will do so, the father makes him take an oath. And we asked him, why does the Yaakov make Yosef take an oath after Yosef had agreed to do what he had re requested? And the answer was, Yaakov knows that Paro will respect and honor an oath. A word is not enough, but an oath is something that Paro would respect. Verse 7. Yosef goes to bury his father. This is a very, this is a national funeral. The elders of the household of power, the servants of the household of power, all escort this funeral. The entire family of Yosef go, the, uh, his brothers and the family. They left in Mitzrayim the children, the flock, and the cattle they had left in the land of Goshen. Of course they would leave the flock. Who goes to a funeral taking all your sheep and your flock? I would like to suggest that maybe the con Paro's condition to them going to Canaan was that they leave the children and the flock. That is a guarantee that they will come back. And perhaps... Had they not left that, they would not have come back. And the reason they stayed in Mitzrayim, Yaakov is elderly, Yaakov can't return. Well, the real reason they're staying in Mitzrayim is because this is God's will, that this should be the beginning of Galut. But from the brothers' perspective, why do they choose to be in Mitzrayim? They stayed in Mitzrayim during the years of famine. They needed to stay there. But at, once the famine is over, they stay because that's where Yaakov is going to... Yosef can't leave, and Yaakov wants to be with Yosef. But once Yaakov is, is dead, we would think that they would want to go back. And maybe they do want to go back. And Paro fears that they might end up staying in Canaan. And Paro requests a guarantee. And the guarantee is the Tapam Tsonam Karam. We're familiar with this idea of the children and the sheep and the flock remaining as guarantee. During the Makot, Moshe, at one of the points when Paro tells Moshe, you can leave. But he says, oh, just leave the men leave the cattle and the children here. So I think the cattle and the children is guaranteed that they will come back. Verse 9, 
along with his entire funeral entourage, we have uh, chariots and horsemen and a very large camp. Now, this this pasuku that describes this entourage of chariots and horsemen should have appeared with the list of the Egyptians that are joining Yosef. In verse 7, when we're told that Yosef went to bury his father and with him went all the servants of Paro and the elders and all the elders of Mitzrayim. And then we're told that Yosef and his brothers went and not the flock. Only after that we're told the chariots and the horsemen. Now the chariots and the horsemen, which whom are Egyptians, should have been part of the first list, the first group describing all of Paro's servants. I think the reason it's split is the f- servants that are mentioned at the beginning are servants that are coming to respect Yaakov. That's Kol Avdei Yaakov, uh, uh, that are com- that, those are Avdei Paro and the elders of the household of Paro. The chariots and the horsemen that are described at the end, they're not coming out of respect for Yaakov. Maybe they're coming as security to make sure that Yaakov's body arrives at the destination and that they are not attacked by anyone at the, on the way. But it, however, it seems to me that this, these Rechav Parashim, maybe they are coming there to make sure that they return back to Mitzrayim. They reach up to a place called Goren Ha'atad. Goren Ha'atad is identified in a 6th century mosaic map, the map of Meidva, as a place near Yericho. So they stop at this place near Yericho, and, that, and it's not clear how did they come east of Israel and cross over the Yarden, which would be the long way of coming, or did they come through Derek Plishtim and get to Yericho and go south towards Hebron. In any case, at Goren Ha'atad, they make a big mourning ceremony of seven days. Verse 11. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning in, in Goren Hatad, they said, This is a grievous mourning to the Egyptians. And therefore, the name of the place was called Abel Mitzrayim. And Yaakov's sons did to him as he had commanded. There are two conversations recorded regarding Yaakov's burial plans. One is when he discusses with Yosef, and he tells Yosef, Do not bury me in Mitzrayim. Take me to my, the homeland of my fathers. And the other one we read today at the beginning of the class, when Yaakov tells all of his sons, Bury me in Marat Machpelah, where my grandparents were buried, where my parents were buried, where the, the place that my father had purchased, and so on. Now, I'd like to develop this idea of the two tzavaot, the two wills that Yaakov has regarding his burial. That that he asks of Yosef, not to bury him in Egypt, and the other one which he asks of all of his sons, and that is to bury him in the family lot in Hebron. The reason he specifically asks of Yosef not to bury him in Egypt and take his body out of Mitzrayim, it is that Yosef has a high enough of a position that he can make this request. This request of Yaakov is for a formal is a bureaucratic request which needs to be addressed to the right person and the right person in this case would be Yosef and not the brothers. However, the next request regarding where he wants to be buried and that is in the in Canaan in the lot of the family that's a request that he can ask of all of his sons once they receive the formal permission from Paro through Yosef not to be buried in Mitzrayim, Yaakov expresses to all the sons where it is that he would like to be buried. However, there's another level that could be read into the, into the two wills that we have here. Of all the sons, Yaakov is most concerned with the identity 
of Yosef. Yosef has been living in Egypt for several decades. Yosef identifies with the Egyptians. To a large degree, Yosef is an Egyptian. We saw this in today's class. Yosef asks of the Rofim, of the doctors, to mummify his father. That is part of the Egyptian culture. Yosef has been raised in this Egyptian culture. Yaakov constantly, from the time he arrives in Mitzrayim, wants to bring Yosef back to his roots. And therefore, to Yosef, Yaakov says, I do not want to be part of this. I do not want to be buried in Mitzrayim. Al natik bereni b'Mitzrayim. To everyone else, he'll say, where in Canaan, he does want to be buried. But most important is the message that he gives Yosef, this is not where I belong. And Yosef indeed will understand this message, and he, on his deathbed, will tell his brothers the exact same thing, and says, take me out of here after I die. And his sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Avraham had bought the field for a possession, a burying place from Ephron Achiti, front of Mamre. There are two burial ceremonies. There's the national ceremony, which ends at Goren Ha'atad, with another seven days of mourning. And after that, there's the family ceremony, and that is only Yaakov and his sons. So we have the royal, the royal funeral, and now we have the Jewish funeral. This is just Yaakov and his family. Tomorrow's class, we will see in what way does the death of Yaakov impact the dynamic in the family. Shalom.